0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this New Books Network podcast. My name is Catriona Gold, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Dr. Tarek Younis about his new book, The Muslim State and Mind, Psychology in Times of Islamophobia. Dr. Younis is a senior lecturer in psychology at Middlesex University, And his new book was released with SAGE earlier this year, that is 2023, as part of their Social Science for Social Justice series. Viewing the Psy disciplines from the margins, his book discusses how psychological theories and practices can serve state interests and perpetuate inequality, especially racism and Islamophobia. The book is both thought-provoking and timely, And it also provides a useful introduction to the growing body of critical work being done in this area by Tarek and by others, which I hope we'll get to hear more about later in our interview. But I'll let our guest tell you about that. Without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Tarek.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: You're very welcome. We're so glad to have you here. So I'd like to start by asking you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book.
0: Yeah, sure. So uh, I guess first and foremost, let me repeat that point that uh, I'm very happy to hear to be here, and uh, I really appreciate you offering that space for me to share my thoughts. So as for me, my background is a little bit complicated, and I think in this complication, that's sort of what brought me to writing this book. I think there's two major strands, if not maybe three, that weave together to formulate the, um, the rope right, that this book has become. Uh, I think one is sort of my background in working with the community. I have a background of, of activism and working with um, especially with youth. And so that's been the main foundation which pushed me towards a more nuanced understanding of Islamophobia the war on terror and other dynamics which impact especially uh, racialized Muslim youth. The second thing I think, I guess, comes from my background in terms of psychology. In terms of my background in psychology, it just seems like obviously by title I'm a psychologist, but really my training and my interest in psychology has always really been about unpacking and understanding the nuances of I guess you can say Western psychology as it relates to globalization and sort of the growing need to understand how to work with migrants and refugees. And so that's, that's really what inspired my interest in psychology and specifically, let's say, therapy. And so there was already this understanding or this awareness for me that there's something really important about recognizing the Eurocentricism of psychology and how it's appropriate across the world. And so I think there's a lot of overlap between those two strands. And what becomes really quite obvious is the politics of both. And I think one thing that became pretty obvious to me over time is that there's the politics of psychology can inform us a little bit about the climate that Muslims, um, racialized Muslims in the global north are navigating. And also that the politics of Islamophobia, the politics of Muslims can also reveal something about psychology. So there's this two-way interaction whereby understanding Islamophobia can actually reveal something about psychology and, you know, understanding how psychology operates in the global north can reveal something about Islamophobia. And so... The purpose of this book was to really unpack that two-way interaction. Maybe just to mention one of the strands, I mean, it's less about me and now it's a little bit more about the themes of the book, but I think one thing that really struck me is just how both in Islamophobia discussions of Islamophobia as well in psychology, there's this depoliticized impulse to talk about both of those as sort of like a political phenomenon, which just sort of just happened to exist, right? So in terms of Islamophobia, you know, there's sometimes this tendency to think about Islamophobia as just like these instances of hostility, verbal and physical abuse that just might happen on the street towards certain individuals that obviously are problematic, but in no way, shape or form reflect the political climate that we're in. Right, And so it's a very sort of depoliticized understanding of Islamophobia. But same with psychology, that psychology is this apolitical science, so to speak, that has no bearing whatsoever on the context that it's in, its history and how it operates, uh, especially towards racialized minorities. The book is really just trying to, you know, it's just me sort of trying to address both of those inconsistencies. These discussions have long taken place. I'm just putting some of these ideas together as as it to Islamophobia.
1: Right, that's really helpful. And I mean, I should have mentioned in, in my introduction that as well as being an academic and an activist, you are also a practicing psychologist. So there's a lot of different kind of realms of expertise that are feeding in to this book. I wonder if we could move for you to give our listeners a sense of the book as a whole. So you started to explain what you know, what the value or the point of the book is, um, but maybe you could give us a, a more slightly more detailed sense of what topics you're tackling, why they're important, and also who you expect will benefit from reading this book or who you would like to read this book.
0: Okay, well. Hopefully everyone, but, um, you know, I think realistically, you know, I'm hoping this book will hopefully inspire those who are either interested in racism, Islamophobia more broadly or and or um, how that's embedded within the mental health disciplines like psychology. Um, and so I think as a wider trajectory, I think it really fits within the wider sort of literature on Islamophobia. Um, you know, I, I begin my book with um, with one of the sort of the, um, the I don't, I forgot what the, the a disclaimer um, that, uh, sorry, not a disclaimer, sorry, if we're going to just take this back. You know, I begin my book with Uh, An acknowledgement that this book is really for anyone who suffered um, the smiles of foxes, you know, even though they were told to um, fear the, the bites of wolves. And I think a big part of what the initial first two chapters is about is sort of just really, first of all, unpacking that statement, which, you know, goes back to, at least in my references, going back to Malcolm X who spoke about sort of how, you know, we're told to fear wolves, but it's the fox that lures you in with a smile and then inevitably uh, bites you. And it's that sort of, it's, it's that liberal racism. And I think the racism that perpetuates through disciplines like psychology cannot be understood outside of an understanding of how liberal racism operates uh, towards uh, racialized minorities. Um, and maybe here I'll just make a quick point for anyone who's listening, who maybe lost how I make that distinction between liberal and illiberal racism. Illiberal racism is a sort of wholesale, you know, um, wholesale demonization of an entire group. Like, you know, all, I hate all Muslims. I hate all black people. Things like that. Right. It's a sort of racism that I think often people think about or point out when they speak about racism. Um But liberal racism doesn't operate on this wholesale demonization. Liberal racism often operates on registers of good and bad, right? Like there's good Muslims and there's bad Muslims. Oh yeah. There's good migrants and there's bad migrants, right? Um, and, 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 you know, these, these registers go on and on. And I think one of the most significant elements of liberal racism and how it operates is it's just this presumed colorblindness that, you know, it's not racist when we're talking about undocumented migrants. You know that the Brexit campaign wasn't racist because it never really specifically pointed out specific migrants. But you can tell, obviously in the rhetoric and obviously in the imagery, you know, Nigel Farage stood in front of a poster when he's standing in front of a poster um, you know, decrying the influx of of people coming into England, he, you know, who's on the poster, it's not just, it's not a bunch of racialized Scandinavians, right? There's certain racialized idea of people coming in and they all kind of are racialized Muslims, Arabs, etc. So this element of colorblindness where it's like, oh, I'm not talking about Muslims, I'm not talking about black people, but I'm talking about terrorism. I'm talking about gangs, I'm talking about knife violence, Um, you know, these highly racialized constructs, you know, is something that we're seeing very, very clearly today. Um, And the point of the first chapter, two chapters really, is to explain how psychology is actually really significant as a discipline, as a discourse. In rendering, you know, racist strategies, ra- racist paradigms, in rendering them colorblind, and making them sort of palpable within a liberal discourse, um, and um, I guess maybe just to finalize very quickly, one of the ways that it can do so is by, you know, I, I bring that up in counter extremism, so maybe we can bring this again later, but just sort of speaking towards our shared human vulnerability right? So let's look at our shared human vulnerability, uh, at who might become a terrorist in the future, who might join gangs, etc. And so psychology psychology, and psychologists can play very integral roles in these sort of very racist paradigms. And there's a long history to that, you know, there's a long colonial history um, as well. But, you know, that's that can be further explained.
1: I think that leads on really well into my next question, which, which is about the concept of pre-crime. And it seems clear that there are some points of connection here to other struggles, other forms of racism. Maybe we could explore that through this concept of pre-crime, which you introduce in your fifth chapter on securing the Muslim mind. So could you give us a sense, maybe with an example of what pre-crime is?
0: Mm, Okay. So I think here I can just just like immediately draw on this on that train of thought that i had right before you know psychology the discipline of psychology has a long-standing history of trying to i guess you can say manage ideal citizenry right um and especially in colonial contexts you know psychologists were employed in um in you know surveilling and managing dissidents, you know, and possible revolutionaries. And so, you know, there is I already this idea of trying to capture and manage those who might turn against the state. Right. And so there's a fantastic book on that called like ruling minds. Um, but, you know, even here locally in the you know, like within the global north, psychology already has that long-standing history about of managing in a way ideal subjectivity or ideal ways of you know of thinking experiencing behaving etc um and so pre-crime is a natural evolution to this this isn't many people have written about how pre-criminals pre-crime strategies like counter-extremism are nothing new um, and so for listeners who are not aware maybe, Here in the UK, there is a pre-crime policy called, um, or strategy called PREVENT that's embedded within uh, public institutions like schools, hospitals, even nurseries, where the institution has the responsibility to help identify and report individuals they suspect might become terrorists in the future. Um, And so if this conjures up that sort of image of Tom Cruise in minority report trying to like, you know, piece together, you know, a crime that might happen in the future. It's it's kinda like that, but it's it's far it's far messier. And obviously, uh, one thing I haven't really explained is that the war on terror is uh, is and or was and is and remains a racist enterprise. I mean from its inception, the war on terror and the idea of terrorism is racialized towards Muslims. Um, And so now imposing this duty on public bodies, like schools, like hospitals, to identify pre-criminals, and they use this word, they use the word pre-crime, is obviously very, very problematic. So the prevent duty requires all public bodies in the UK to have due regard in identifying And reporting individuals that they suspect are uh, vulnerable or, you know, might potentially become terrorists in the future. Um, Now, it's really important for me to to emphasize, for anyone who's not aware of this, that counterterrorism is a highly racist enterprise. I think there's there's already quite a lot written about that. So the, the very idea, the very construct of terrorism is racialized in public consciousness, as it is with gangs. Um, for example, if we're trying to think about uh pre-crime for gangs, you try to if you tell the police to go out and try to identify people they suspect might be gang members, you know, it's it's what, what we see in practice is that even if they're telling the police, don't go look out for black people. Black people are far more likely to be stopped and searched uh, in practice. And I think it's just how these these constructs are racialized are really quite significant. So given that, now I think it's important for anyone listening who might not be familiar with prevent strategy. Let's say you're working in a hospital or a school and you're asked to, to be trained in identifying people who might become terrorists in the future. So you go through something called prevent training. And you're sitting there and what's, what's the nature of this training? You'll see that the training is highly psychologized. I think for the purpose of like book, So the training involves a lot of issues. There's a lot of it, but one of the things that's really quite significant, or I'll mention two things. The first thing is that the training often very much sort of institutionalizes gut feeling, right? So it's about really responsibilizing people to listen to their guts, follow their guts, you know, and in a way, in effect, institutionalizing that sort of prejudicial and highly racialized response that one might have to something like terrorism, right? Like, who would more likely to be a terrorist? You know, all of a sudden, if we're telling people to follow their gut feelings, we're going to see that people who are racialized as Muslims are much more likely to be identified, just flat out. I think what's What's very important for me is how psychologized this sort of training is. This what's called counter extremism training. If you're sitting there, you'll notice that the trainer often relates and, and, and speaks in a highly psychologized discourse. He or she, they'll be talking about looking out for individuals who are emotionally vulnerable. They might be depressed. They might be lonely. And so there's this there's this constant repetition of people who are psychologically vulnerable in some way, shape, or form. The psychology of this is doing a lot of work, right? So the fact that it's so highly psychologized is doing a lot of work for the purpose, of you know, this war on terror strategy, which is that first and foremost, when it's speaking in such a highly psychologized language, it's in effect. Rendering colorblind, right? That distinction between sort of liberal and illiberal racism comes into play here that I mentioned earlier. Because when we're speaking about psychological vulnerability, it's it's saying as if anyone listening, myself, you, the listeners, anyone can be psychologically vulnerable enough to becoming a terrorist in the future, right? Anyone among the listeners can be a terrorist in the future if they're psychologically vulnerable enough. At a time where then this ideological virus can come and infiltrate their minds. And so the biggest thing that I think the psych- the psychological discourse is doing in that moment is erasing the significance of race in a racist counterterrorism strategy. It's doing other things as well. And I think it's not necessarily that psychology is suddenly sort of being politicized. I think psychology has a long history in trying to manage you know, not only psychology, psychiatry, so the side disciplines have a long history in managing sort of ideal citizenry, as Nicholas Rose, you know, wrote a long time ago about capturing anti-citizens. There's already a long history there. But I think in terms of pre-crime, we see here it's sort of being reproduced, institutionalized, but very significantly, I think for the purpose of Islamophobia and, and, and discussions of racism, It really renders it colorblind, and in doing so, it gives racist strategies this air of benevolence. Yeah, I'm just trying to help someone who is psychologically vulnerable, even though the whole, you know, the whole sort of referral might have been incredibly racist because it just happens to be, as we see in terms of referral statistics, if you look at statistics for something called Mental Health hub, where... People who were deemed to be vulnerable to terrorism or to radicalization were being firmed for mental health assessments. The vast majority of them were young, racialized Asian youth. And so it's very, very clear that it gives a sort of air of benevolence and try to help. But really, in, in, in practice, it's highly racist. In, in its, um, in itself.
1: The other chapter that I'd really like to zoom in on is chapter four, and it's discussion of trauma or legitimacy through suffering, as you put it. Can you tell us about how you understand trauma? What are the uses and limitations of the concept of trauma in either political or therapeutic contexts? And how helpful is it for understanding the experiences you discuss in the book?
0: Okay, thank you. That's a really important discussion for me. I should mention that I really want to emphasize that for listeners that I'm not introducing or opening up a new sort of critique of trauma. There's been sort of long-standing discussions and critiques of the use of trauma. Uh, and though the purpose of that chapter is sort of to integrate it within a wider discussion of the politics of suffering and the politics of what's health. Wow. But in terms of trauma, I think, you know, there's sort of a wider trend to recognize Islamophobia in relation to trauma, right? So if we're thinking about it in terms of attacks on Muslims, whatever it might be. But if the listeners, if people reading the book have followed the trajectories so far, I think one of the main critiques I have trauma that other people have highlighted is that there's this depoliticizing impulse towards discussions of trauma. Or just emphasis on trauma rather. Right. So I personally I do work with trauma when I'm when I'm working with clients. But discussions of trauma tend to I guess reproduce the very particular forms of understanding suffering and anguish and violence as well. And I think I would say maybe there's two major critiques to trauma. First it's thinking about how, in terms of his depoliticizing impulse, I talk about Palestine, for example, and how it renders all conflicts, You know, the, the work of trauma, by, by mentioning or by explaining that everyone is equally traumatized in a conflict, right? Both sides are equally traumatized because the nature of conflict is inherently going to traumatize everyone there's already that sort of depoliticizing impulse. And I think that also speaks to like thinking about, you know, the politics of violence here in the global north to say, that oh, you know, Muslims are traumatized by, a Muslim woman would be traumatized by an attack on her, just the same way that a white woman would be, you know, traumatized by, by an attack, right? So it just is a way of, again, individualizing it and rendering it a point of this is this is where the site of violence is, this is how we understand it and this is how we make it legible. I talk about here how trauma then becomes our only way of you know rendering that sort of violence understandable. If we're thinking about the the Christchurch attack or the Quebec City attack, you know, we say, oh, it's actually these attacks as we know, provoked a very comprehensive post-traumatic response, mental health response for the family and everyone involved. And so it is a point of legibility that that's where the site of violence is. That's where Islamophobia is because that's what we recognize trauma to be. But on the other hand, what we see what trauma discourse is sort of dismissing is, let's say, state violence. If we think about, you know, some of my clients, a Muslim woman who's constantly under under threat to have her children removed from her, just because let's say her husband or a family member may have been charged, not necessarily found guilty, but just immediately the moment they're charged with anything terrorism related, and here to really really make this point, most people who are charged with terrorism, the vast vast majority of them, those charges end up dropping, right? But at that immediate point where that that charge comes in, the Muslim woman is living under this sort of intense anxiety and suffocation that the state is going to come and take her children away, and this is a sort of fear that I think people don't really understand. This sort of anxiety, um, and when I speak with them, you know, they're they're, I mean, they're literally shaking, right? I mean, they are incredibly scared and they coming out. Um, doing things so the sort of reactions that we might relate to trauma. But the problem is that the word trauma here is in a way inappropriate because one thing that trauma does is that it locates the site of violence sometime in the past, right? Like something happened to you and now, and you, you experience trauma and now we can work through it. Whereas what trauma is not capturing for, for this woman is the continued fear, violence and suffocation that they're constantly experiencing. And this hasn't only been related here, uh, that I'm relating here, people have related that to occupied territories, like in Palestine, that the word trauma there doesn't make any sense because they're living in perpetual state of occupation. And so we can't just say, oh, these people are traumatized. That in a way would be depoliticizing the continuous state of violence.
1: Right, that's really helpful. I think this is, yeah, a good point for us to maybe pivot and start talking about the people, the writers, scholars, theorists who have influenced you in writing this book or whose, whose work you found important. I spoke to Rizwan Sabir last year about his book, The Suspect, and I was thinking of that as you're talking about trauma here, The ongoingness of his experience isn't properly accounted for by a single traumatic experience. I wonder if you could say more about the people whose work you draw on, because the book is very explicitly theoretically informed, and maybe give our listeners some reading recommendations, you know, for further exploration.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think certainly Quence no, comes to mind. I have some, I guess I have some critiques of Quence for I'll put those aside. I think Quence is a necessary reading for anyone who is thinking about sort of um, not only racism, but sort of the uh, implications of mental health disciplines in in racist contexts. And I think the one element I think I would take from Fanon that, that others I encourage others to look into is really is, I guess you can consider he, they call it sort of a sociogenic way of looking at issues, rather than this highly depoliticized approach that we have today, which is that people are in these political co- contexts, but let's focus on the individual. You know, if someone is suffering depression, and it's very clearly related to the cost of living crisis, right? The depoliticizing the, the impulse that we see today is to work on that person's depression rather than really appreciate yeah. and considering the, the cost of living crisis. That and François in a way, he inverts that. He's making it that we can, we can diagnose the sociopolitical climate that we're in by looking at one person sort of suffering and their anguish. And it's very revealing and find that. But I think that inversion is important. So um uh you know many of philosophers' book major books like uh, I mean Wretched of the Earth is probably the, the best introduction yeah. there. There's others, I think there is one Savir is a really great example of everything that I spoke about. His book The Suspect I would say is a necessary reading because he really reveals that point. You know that critique I just had about trauma, the problem with trauma is that it locates some time in the past. Whereas Juan's experiences that he highlights in the book really demonstrate the sort of continued state of suffocation that he was experiencing, where trauma doesn't really fully encompass his experiences. And because that book is so good at demonstrating both his autobiography with theory and meshes the two together, uh, really well, I would say is a necessary reading. I mean, there's definitely other writers, you know, I've mentioned, for example, Dr. Sameh Jaber, uh, I haven't mentioned her name, but she was, uh, she's a Palestinian psychiatrist who spoke about sort of, I critique the usage of trauma in Palestine. You know, there's other authors, I'll just pull, you know, one more. I'll say in terms of thinking good, phobia, there's Semen Said and uh, Abdu'l-Karim Bakir. They've written a lot on, on the phobia, which I highly encourage um, people to, to read. So I mean, those are just some examples, actually, maybe final book recommendation is also Konechi. He edited really fantastic anthology called I Refuse to Condemn, which looks at this experience of Muslims needing to condemn violence committed by other Muslims and where that comes from. And I think that's a really fantastic introduction to some of the discussions I have.
1: Great, thanks. All solid recommendations. All right, so my final question for you now is what are you working on at the moment?
0: So at the moment, I am very grateful to have the book off my shoulders. So I think I was taking some time off in terms of writing focus on other things. But the major thing that I'm working towards right now is the away from the discussion, you know, that whole point of um, that was a woman who's experiencing that intense state of anxiety and fear of state violence. I think there's very little support systems established for people like this. They offer they often suffer in silence and completely isolated. And so one thing I'm working on very very concretely, support service um, that will be hopefully l- launching soon. It's called Coming Home, that's meant to help capture and support maybe captures or both, but really just you know help find and support individuals who have experienced securitization in some shape or form. And otherwise, uh, I'm looking to do more research on I think the wider overlaps between. The securitized policies, thinking about the war on terror, gangs, knife crime, illegal, what they call illegal immigration or undocumented undocumented migrants. There's a lot of overlaps at how these security policies and technologies operate, and I'd like to certainly do more work in capturing that the violence.
1: Great. Well, I look forward to seeing some of that as it comes down the pipes. Do let me know when your current project launches. In the meantime, it's been. A privilege to read this book and wonderful talking with you today. So thank you Tarek for coming on the show and thank you everyone else for tuning in. Once again, my name is Catriona Gold and I've been speaking with Dr. Tarek Yunus about his new book, The Muslim State and Mind, Psychology in Times of Islamophobia, published by SAGE in 2023. I highly recommend picking up a copy from your local bookstore, direct from the publisher, or from any ethical retailer. Thanks all for listening, and thanks again, Tarek, for joining me today.
0: Thank you for having me.